My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Slow Departure. The Simple Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Violation. The Deception. The Suspicion. Resistance. The Unexpected. Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. And my, and my name, name is, is Meg. Yes, that Excellent. was so good. That Perfect. Was so good. Great job, everybody. Welcome. So this is Anamorphology, our uh, all the guests panel. Guest panel. So for this episode, we invited back everyone who's been a guest host on our podcast. And there are so many of you. It's wonderful. It's so great to have them all back. Uh, now that we've finished the series and they've finished the series, there are a lot of thoughts. Uh, there are also a lot of people. So we're going to try to let everyone share their thoughts. And it's going to be great. How do you want to start, Ted? I think we should start with people who read the series for the first time. What are your feelings about the ending? Liz? I'm excited. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, I texted Jenny this afternoon to say that Teenage Jenny was wrong and that Animorphs really sticks the landing in a way that few long series ever managed to do. It's, uh, it's, it, was, it was really great. How about Casey? You want to share your thoughts? Yeah, I really liked the ending. Um, it like totally broke my heart in two million pieces in a good way for the most part. Um, it was brutal. I, I think like I wanted a little bit, I was like left hanging a little bit in terms of, you know, seeing some of, more of some of the characters and you guys talked about it too. Like I wanted to see more Tobias. He only gets like one little puny chapter. I needed, I wanted to see him like react more. I almost wanted to see Cassie dealing more with her very best friend's death like she just kind of seemed to move on so fast and I think it made me a little mad at Cassie which it's not her fault it's the book's fault but I was already mad at her about the whole morphing cube thing you know so um there was more than I wanted to see I there were gaps you know I where were all the the parents like you talked about like I, I love that the penultimate book was like a million stars for me. And then the last one, I was like, uh, I just, you know, it was so good, but I, there was there was a little bit more that, that I, I wanted. Um, I think probably also, I just didn't want it to end. <laughs> With you. Definitely. Um, okay, how about John? It was your first time finishing, I think, right? Yes. So for the actual ending where they blast off into space, uh, I was really kind of disappointed in that as an ending just because it, it's a non-ending. There was no reason for them to go into space. Anyway, we'll get into it. But, <laughs> um, I'm so excited. But, but for, the, for the whole book, uh, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of the other criticisms. I did like that they dealt with a lot of the, like, after the war, these people aren't doing so hot stuff. And it, like, life is really boring after that. So I, I did like that piece of it. I also, and I'm sure we will talk about it at length, I don't understand why Cassie gets to be the only person that has a good outcome from this. But I have many opinions on that. Um, so <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited to hear all of those opinions. More rants from other people who aren't me. It's great. <laughs> Let's go to Lauren. Okay. I'm going to echo a couple of things that have already been said. The whole Rachel thing really broke my heart, but like in a good way. Like I think that to... Uh, succeed at what 
Kay Applegate set out to do, someone needed to die. One of them needed to die. And I, I thought she handled Rachel's death really well. And in general, I was pleased with the outcome and the fact that not everyone ended up happy. I would have chosen to end the book with naming the spaceship Rachel and then just going off into space to find Axe. To me, that would be uh, non-ending enough that they would, you know, have a future, but introducing a new threat with nothing behind it at the end that really pissed me off i just want the listeners to know how many people are like doing the clapping hands emoji and the (laughs) thumbs up emoji on zoom and not vigorously yeah Yeah. and selfishly i wish we had gotten more information about lauren's outcome and whether she ever found out about elfangor katie i think did you say this was your first time finishing it was so i didn't read the series as a kid I read it for the first time with the different podcast in the summer of 2018. So while I didn't finish the series reading along with you guys, I had only finished it a year and change prior. And so I still have that kind of like adult perspective on the books. And I have to say that when I started reading them, it was more like so I could follow along better with that podcast. I was just like, oh, this is just going to be a fun kid series. The covers are so goofy. Like... The books are so short. It was written in 98. Surely nothing actually (laughs) affecting can happen in these books. And I like to think that I'm a person who can admit when I'm wrong. And boy, was I wrong. It turns out Animorphs, they're good. It's good, actually. (laughs) That's the tagline for the book series. Animorphs. Turns out it's good. And um, I definitely was way more emotionally thrown by the ending when I read it because I was reading it like by myself at my kitchen table, like with my like my iPad out because <laughs> I couldn't wait for the podcast episodes to come out. At that point, I was all caught up with the previous one. And instead of like waiting week after week, I was like, I can't. I have to finish the series right now. Like I it was so fraught for me, like I couldn't put it off for for weeks to find out what happened. And I had actually already been spoiled for what happened with Rachel because I was already drawing fan art at that point. And it's impossible to post anything online and try and participate in fandom without learning some spoilers. And so I like, I knew that she died and I was like, Oh, that sounds, you know, upsetting, but also fitting. I can see how that could be her character arc. Like she's the warrior. Like she goes out in battle. It makes sense. I grew up reading Redwall. I know what happens to characters like that. And I still wasn't ready. I still cried. I still (laughs) was really moved by the ending that she got from a series that, and I love how Gray, you agreed with me in like the sort of later episodes had been really done a disservice by a bunch of the writing up until the last like few books. I love Rachel. And I think she got a really beautiful end. And like, that's what really stuck with me. It was really something. Pretty much. Yeah. In a middle grade book. In a middle grade grade books. I know. (laughs) Um, Nicole, let's uh, have you give your take. I was very pleasantly surprised by how satisfied I was by the ending. I liked that they were all going off on a new adventure, uh, although I'm willing to consider Lauren's alternate proposal for where that could have cut off. But I, it didn't bother me that it was a cliffhanger. I liked the idea that the Animorphs were still out there doing their Animorphs thing. It felt strange that it was only the boy Animorphs off doing their mm-hmm. Animorphs thing, but I guess it made sense since ultimately Rachel was dead and Cassie had proven herself to be the worst. Um, is still my strong <laughs> position on the matter. Uh, oh my but 
So it, it, it felt <laughs> like ultimately justified and not like a weird throwaway. We like the boy characters better or something. So I, I was very happy. <laughs> uh, love it. This is going to be great. <laughs> Our next division is not going to be whether this is your first time finishing it, but whether you think Cassie is the worst. <laughs> um, all right, Jeremy. I'll you. <laughs> so with the caveat that I think I am a, a happy ending read fiction to escape from the world kind of person. I did not like the ending. I think Apple Grant were gone for too long and we're not able to to rescue it. My The analogy that's been occurring to me in, in recent days, thinking about it, and this might be doubly controversial, I don't know this crowd or what you like. There was a, there was a TV show called How I Met Your Mother oh. that oh, went on oh, for... No. <laughs> in terms of my anger at the end of a series, How I Met Your Mother was 100 and Animorphs was like a 50. So to be clear. Oh, wow. okay. um, but How I Met Your Mother's problem was that it went like three or four seasons past when they thought it would go. And as a result, though the creators had an ending already in mind and went with it anyway, even though their characters had grown far beyond that ending. I think that just, I wanted the ending to pick up on a lot of things that it didn't. Like, I, I feel like it was kind of a step back for Axe and Marco and Tobias and <laughs> arguably Cassie. And that something that really interested me and that caught my attention was the way that the scope of the series built. And I'd love to talk about this later mm -hmm. in, in, in the show. Um, one of my absolute favorite books in the series was Visser because it gives you this larger <laughs> sci-fi narrative. And I think the ending really suddenly we, one thing I really hated was how few Yerks there were. Like suddenly, oh, it was just one pool ship with only, I don't know, 17,000 Yerks, which is clearly not enough to take over a planet of 7 billion people. Like, and worst of all, Cryak never showed back up and I was just kind of <laughs> left. <laughs> I mean, part of it was listening to Gray and being like, I'm with you. I'm sure that Cryak's going to show back up. And <laughs> Alas. Not so much, so. So I was frustrated by the ending. Emily, I think it was your first time finishing it as well, right? It sure was, yes. <laughs> it's funny because I'm living with my sister right now and after I finished the last book, I went downstairs and was like, I wish I could talk to you about the ending, but she's never read it. And I just felt like, oh God, I have to sit on all these feelings for like five days till we do this podcast. I had a lot of very conflicted feelings. On the one hand, I loved that it was messy. I loved that it wasn't clean. I loved that a lot of things didn't turn out the way you would think they would, especially in a middle grade novel. I loved that Jake and Cassie didn't get together because yeah, you would totally grow out of each other in a separate way. I loved, I, I just loved how messy it was. That being said, I hated that Rachel died. And it's funny because I knew, so it's like who said it before, I think Katie maybe, I knew ahead of time that it was, that, that she would die because someone had said as much in, I think, my Reddit AMA. And I was like, oh, well, now I know that. But, um, <laughs> oh no. No, it's Well, fine. to Katie's point, yeah. <laughs> That's a <laughs> You can't not. And so I think perhaps knowing that I expected more for her Four chapters felt and maybe it's because I'm an actor and I'm playing Rachel, but that felt short. I was insulted. I was like, that is not enough time. I need so much more time with her. And maybe because I waited between reading and listening to 53 and then I had to wait like 24 hours to do 54. And so I just didn't feel any sense of emotional like satisfaction or catharsis and I felt I really felt like she had been used like you know you guys talked a lot about she wasn't it wasn't like fridging it she wasn't like used and I was sitting there going yes she was I feel very angry about this and um 
more than that, um, my inner feminist was absolutely screaming bloody murder at the fact that only the boys go off to do things in the future. I was so mad because this series, for all of its problematic elements, had given me two rich, complicated, cool women that I could potentially see myself in. And at the end, I had zero. And I was really mad about that. So yeah, lots of complicated feelings. I loved it. I hated it. <sighs> yeah. I'm, I'm with you on, I loved it. I hated it. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I've disagreed with anyone, even though there've been so many different opinions. Let's go, let's do Claire first and then we'll have more. Yeah. Didn't read, but listen to it. So listening to it made me want to read it. I just finished listening to all the episodes today, but I, I do plan to to read at least the ending because I, I could just tell how powerful it was by how uh, emotionally affected you all were uh, by what was going on. I have to say, I also, based on what I know from the podcast, was very impressed with the ending. And I feel like the decision to, as Emily said, keep things messy, make Jake's war crime decision not be something that it's like clear whether it had to happen or not and then to also continue on and show the ramifications of that for him uh emotionally and how everybody is dealing after the war i think is really really fantastic and i think that those aspects of the ending i am fully on board with and i'm very glad about them i don't really have particular feelings about the whole going on to the next adventure i am kind of curious to know not just what people feel about that but like why everybody thinks that that was the choice that they made and and what the significance of not ending it where Lauren talked about is if if at all so I'd be really curious to hear people's take about that who could actually read it one other thing I have to say about the ending is just because I'm coming from the perspective of having read 50 and talked about 50 and I think I am very interested in the choice to do what they did with morphing and nothleting for the taxons and also um, having the morphing power be this really powerful thing for the Yerks as well. And everything that you guys said on the podcast about like what it means to be a species that doesn't want to be the way they are in some way or like doesn't feel right about their natural programming, so to speak, which I want to talk about the parallel with Eric and human programming and, and so on, but we can get to that later. Yes. All right. Let's, uh, let's hear from our longtime readers, first time listeners. I definitely want to hear the story of like when you finished it for the first time at whatever age, that feeling. And then also like your takes on it now. And if you've been involved in fandom or thought about it over the years. I want to start with Rena only because Rena, is this not your, this is not your first time listening, right? Or reading, right? Oh, yeah, correct. This is my, uh, yeah, I definitely finished it as a te young teenager. Okay. So do you want to tell us about when you finished it and your thoughts thereon? Sure. So yeah, when I, I started Animorphs, kind of when it was being published like around the late 40s or something like that because book number 54 is the only book that I bought because the library didn't have it yet and so it's the only one that I had that I purchased brand new and all the others have been secondhand since then when I read it as a kid I was pretty disappointed in the ending uh like you know nothing turned out the way I thought it would you know I had read a lot of kind of happier and like more positive series up to that point so yeah it was it was kind of a, like a cold water shock and I didn't really 
know how to take it. Coming back to it as an adult, I have a lot more appreciation for some of the harder themes and like the, you know, the war is over, but you still carry it with you kind of mentality. And um, I can really appreciate those a lot more and enjoy the ending a lot more for that. Uh, I still have a lot of major issues with uh, certain elements of the ending, which still keep me from finding it satisfying, even as an adult, not the least of which is the final page cliffhanger. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're gonna have to talk about it oh we're yeah so we'll about it. <laughs> um all right how about meg you want to tell us about your experience so i read the final page not as a cliffhanger i honestly read it that the narrative stopped because they all died when they rammed the boiling ship <laughs> and i that's always how i've read the ending so i'm really shocked for everyone's like yeah it's open-ended and they go into more adventures and i'm like no, no, in space, when two ships hit each other, they both, like, everybody explodes. So, yeah, I am, I'm honestly of belief that not only is Cassie the only happy ending, Cassie is the only survivor of the Animorphs at the end of the series. And that's why the series ends, because there are no more Animorphs. Um, that the, the war goes on, but the Animorphs do not. And I was actually really upset over this ending, over this reading. So I finished it probably when I was around like a very young teen, so maybe 13 or 14, because uh, I'd been reading them as they were coming out, but just sort of dropped off over the last 10 or 15 books. And I, and I went to my friend's house and read, you know, like I think the last chunk of 10 all in a day. And I got to the end and I was very, you know, Zuko, like that can't be it. Where's, where's the rest of it? I felt really hurt because I thought that the authors really understood me as a kid and like knew what I could handle and knew what I wanted in a story. And I personally felt like they used their ending to say, well, you know, life's not really fair. And I'm like, I know that. I know that. So I've, I love the series and I do appreciate the ending and I see what they're trying to do with it, but I'm still like annoyed that they purposely subverted expectations. I get really irritated when people who use their ending to subvert expectations instead of using their full narrative to subvert expectations, because if we're expecting a good ending and you subvert that, then we get a bad ending. But I... I still really love these books and I've, I've gone back to them time and time again. But I loved Rachel and I love that she had a warrior's death because I am all for Rachel, all forever. And pretty much anything I write or anything I develop, there's usually a Rachel character in there because I want Rachel to find justice. There you go. That's Perfect. my take. All right. Joyce, you want to give us your take? Okay, so when Animorphs ended, I, I think I just I had just turned 12, and I couldn't yet think critically about things. Um, <laughs> so I said, oh, well, this must be, well, I, they, all, they all have to end, end sometime. Everything has to end. I was sad, but I thought it felt right. And I told one of my friends at school who also read Animorphs, not, not quite as avidly as I did, how it ended. And she was like, oh, I'm not reading it then. And I was like, no, you should. I want to talk to you about it. <laughs> And since then, I've just kind of loved it more and more. I feel like it fits the character arcs even. I just, this series kind of, um, I've, I've said before in a previous podcast that I love pain. Uh, it's not quite as simple as that, but when I've been feeling really bad, then having a book that also feels really bad feels like it's taking me seriously and not just, you know, trying to be cheerful. When things end badly, I feel alive <laughs> sometimes. And this is kind of That's the awesome. series that taught me to feel that way. So tell us more. Like, like honestly, in, 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 in 2016, when Rogue One ends the way it does, it made me feel better. It made me feel 
just, well, it, it, I felt good. And it was the first time I felt good for a few months there. Joyce, I so appreciate your perspective as a person who for the last three months has only wanted to watch or read things that are happy, have happy endings. <laughs> Everyone is joyful all the time, no pain. So I so appreciate having the opposite perspective always. I mean, I do love that there is so much light in Animorphs. I love that like the the, the setting of the world is so positive there. It just it also, if it's just that, then I walk away. <laughs> All right, Kevin, you're our last one. Want to give us when you finished it, your perspective? So I finished it sometime as like a middle teenager. I liked the ending. Don't get me wrong, like I had problems with it, which we will get into later, I'm sure. It felt like there were two series, one that Apple Grant started and another that um, like all the ghostwriters kind of like meddled with in the middle. And then Apple Grant came back in to finish it. There is and even with like some of the other like uh, the Chronicles like subseries and the Megamorphs, there was a certain somber tone that was lacking from a lot of the ghost written ones. I feel like had, you know, they had the time or the energy or maybe even the desire to write the entire series themselves, we would have gotten more of a flow. And that was, I think, the big failing of it. Like what happened with Rachel, again, I'm sure we will extrapolate on this later. It didn't bother me as much because it felt like it was her character making that choice it wasn't something that was thrust upon her. It was something that she went into with both eyes open. And, you know, through all the warrior, warrior Xena stuff that we've had with her throughout the entire series, like, it felt right. The, uh, the ending, I did not interpret it as all of them dying. I thought it was just a stupid cliffhanger. But I do like that interpretation that they all just exploded and that was the end of it. Yeah, it's weird because the last section of the series proper is never the, the stories that stuck with me the most. Probably the one that like had the most resonance for me was actually the Horkbidger Chronicles. The history, the beginning of the war, how it all started, and like everything else. I got a lot more out of that than the ending to the series as a whole. So when everything kind of just blew up in everyone's face, I was like, yeah, this seems right. War doesn't really, like nobody actually wins a war. They just kind of move forward. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. I feel like we're, we probably will just spend the next hour talking about the ending. Yeah, but- yeah. I think we should talk about the last chapter and people, if people want to rant about it, if people want to defend it, people want to give their other, their takes and things like that. Does anyone want to start with a rant about the end? <laughs> I'll go. Oh, Rena wants to start. Her All right, Rena, then Meg. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it really bothers me that the final chapter is like a completely random out of nowhere villain who just pops up and then it ends just like so abruptly okay cliffhanger or no i mean like whether you assume that they just die or whether you assume that that it's a cliffhanger and that the series could theoretically continue i feel like either way it didn't really felt like it gave closure to the series and i know that like one of the things that that applegate said in her letter letter to the fans is like you know war keeps going on but I'm like i felt like a lot of the things she addressed in her letter weren't the issues that i had sure life is unfair and life is crazy but like fiction is usually like a sort of closed bubble there's a there's a distinctive start there's a distinctive end and not everything does that but it felt like she was trying to say that this open ending ought to provide closure and i was i just felt it didn't um so like i i don't mind an open ending i wouldn't have minded if say like jake went off and said you know what i'm not happy about how things have gone on i'm gonna find cryak and let the real chess games begin like i feel like that would have been an open ending and like you you could have assumed that he died doing that because who could fight cryak and when i mean he did once but might might not next time 
So I just feel like it just wasn't fair to the characters to be like, surprise, villain, and that's it. (laughs) You're right. It feels like it's part of a different story. I would continue on, like, to add on to what Rena said is I feel that's mostly my problem with the ending is, you know, I don't care that it's open-ended or ambiguous. I just, I don't like the one. I don't like the concept (laughs) of the one. And I don't like... You know, this this surprise, completely different, horrible villain out of nowhere. I To touch on a question that I'm seeing in the chat as well, a very important dropped storyline to me is Kryak and the Elemist. And I know that we were an important part of their story, but there's so much there that I would have liked to see more of, or at least know the direction in which that was going when we hit the end of the series. And like... I know it's hard to write a satisfying ending because like Jenny mentioned in a couple episodes before the end, it's much easier to ask questions than it is to answer them, but you shouldn't answer them with just more questions on a whole. And I know uh, I'm coming across this feeling very negatively about the ending. I recognize that like from a literary standpoint, it's a good ending. It's just, I want more and they're never going to give me any more. So I'm hoping that maybe the movie or TV series someday may like add some more light or touch on additional storylines that they themselves feel could have been better developed. Katie. Yeah, I just want to add on to what Meg just said and like another, sure they're traumatized, whatever. I, I still want them to keep having adventures. Me as like that manipulative reader that Gray, Jenny and Ted talked about in their last couple of episodes is like, I still want them to go on adventures even though they're all hurt, but so while that part of me really likes how they still went into space and had like Animorphs version two, like they had to cram all of that in the back half of an already very short book. And it feels, it does feel a little cheap. The way like the cliffhanger ending seems like it should come at the end of its own book, not like this sort of fast forward through an entire adventure that we don't even get to see. So that sort of helped, like, I remember while I was reading it for the first time, I couldn't really fully enjoy these, like, this, like, Cliff Notes space adventure they were having, because I was just like, how are they going to wrap this up? There's, like, 10 pages left. What's going on? And, like, I had to go back after I finished the book and try and get into the story and enjoy it for itself without having this confusion going on of how is this going to feel good in only a handful of pages when they've got to do so much. And so that was like, especially like, think, right, like reading it for the first time as an adult, like that was really disorienting for me. And it kept me from really enjoying the ending as much as I maybe could have if it was longer, because I was just like, what's happening? Like, there's all this stuff. How, like, how can I care? Like, <laughs> and what's going to happen? Are they all going to die? Are they all going to explode? Like, <laughs> unclear. Unclear. Liz. I actually don't interpret the ending as a cliffhanger, nor do I think they all died. I think that for the Animorphs, this is the equivalent of riding off into the sunset. This like, this like ending that. this ending is them like going off onto more adventures forever and ever, um, and risking their lives and saving saving the galaxies, and that's what it's telling. It's signaling us. It's not about this new bad guys that there will always be more bad guys and there will always be more adventures to be had. Casey, I bold statement. No way did they die at the end. No way because okay, either like Jake is an idiot or he's <laughs> suicidal. Right? Because I think if you're saying, oh, they definitely would have exploded, like, this is actually not Jake's first time on a spaceship. Like, I think he would, I don't know, like, maybe maybe he's not an expert pilot, but he's got Andalites with him. Like, I think they could have maybe known whether or not it would explode. And he didn't, in that moment, he really, to me, I don't read him or any of the characters as, well, I guess let's just 
like kill ourselves. <laughs> like that's not at all the vibe that I got from them. And like, I don't think that doing that is going to save acts or be productive in any way. So I'm curious as to like, if other people who did think that they all died had like a way different take on Jake's mental state in those final scenes or, or what they think. This may like speak to the age I was when I read it. And also back to, I didn't fully understand how the one worked, but I felt that like the one was completely embodied inside acts at that moment. And like the only way to stop it at this point was to just destroy it. And that sort of matched like we've been having to make more and more extreme choices and extreme sacrifices throughout Mm. the rest of the series. And I felt, yeah, we don't have enough weapons. Like that is the only way to stop them. And I, I don't understand how, like, I'm not saying suicidal, there's nothing else we can do, but like thin, clear line, this is our best option. This will do the most damage. This will save the most people in the long run, lives of the many, needs of the few, etc. Kevin. Could it be argued that Jake was a little suicidal towards the end? Like he was clearly clinically depressed. So I I don't necessarily disagree with the interpretation that no, it was just like his last hurrah. To be fair, Liz, I really agree with you. I I like the idea of them just riding off into the sunset. I think that is probably the best, like the happiest interpretation of the ending we're going to get. Katie, did you... Like apart from just my own feelings of very badly not wanting them to die... (laughs) Is also, I love that parallel between that scene in the Andalite Chronicles, little Fangor making his call to ram the blade ship, and then Jake making that call at the end, and like, parallels, and that's great. Love that in literature. And also, Liz, like, you're phrasing, this is them riding off into the sunset. Like, that's a fantastic way of putting it. And like, I also love sort of this possibility of like, since they're alive, like, yeah, they went off into space because they've still got a lot of like stuff to work through and they still like they still kind of need a war in a way and i think jenny ted and gray brought up the ending of the lord of the rings at one point where like everyone at the end is kind of like they try and go back to their peaceful lives but they can't really because now they like they're in a like they're in a different mindset and the Animorphs can't go back to just like living in a suburb or going to college and they're all messed up. But if they're alive and still like having space adventures, like, yeah, the space adventures are going to kind of suck because it's another war they're heading into and their lives can't ever be totally happy because this is Animorphs, but it still gives them lives left to live in which they can still heal, I guess. Emily. So I have two feelings. One is that I think that is part of why the ending was so upsetting for me because I would have expected what Liz said, where we head out and like adventure awaits. Like that would have been a fair ending. It didn't feel fair though, because we didn't just head out and adventure awaits. We then got invested in a whole new story and that felt really unfair. Like I got to the end. I was like, you have to be kidding me. Like if she was going to like start a new series, I could have understood that ending, but like just get, we got way too invested. We we had way too much detail. And so it didn't feel like an ending. It, Okay, I was going to say it felt like a beginning, which is the title of the book. <laughs> we finally cracked it. Oh, no. <laughs> Trying really hard not to swear right now. Um, yes. You're so noble. Feel free to swear. Mm. Oh, yeah. Gray does it all the time. Yeah, we can bleep yeah. it. Mother <laughs> I can't talk about the title. 
Yes. No. But like, so I hate that. And I love Liz's suggestion. And I realized that's why I felt honestly, I felt betrayed and like really upset at the end that I was just sort of dumped off a cliff. And I think that's why because I was expecting right off into a sunset, not right off into a sunset, and then go with them for like 10 days of the journey and then end up at the West town and someone pulls their their gun. And that's where you end. That's not fair. So that's how I felt. The other thing if I'm going to rant about the ending, I do love the idea that like, you know, these people are broken and they can't go back to normal life in that Lord of the Rings way. But honestly, what are the optics that it's only the men, only the boys get yeah, to go? Yeah. And like, I don't care how you spin that. It's not good either. Women are just better equipped to deal with this bullshit. Or, you know, women aren't equipped to deal with this. Also bullshit. Like the fact that it's just a boys club in space and that it was even as derivative, like, <sighs> okay, I'll stop. Cause I could just scream about <laughs> the fact that like one of the two women had to die and like, yes, she was the warrior, but uh, no, I don't. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I'll, I'll slow my roll. No, that's great. Joyce, go for it. Okay. You. I'm one of the few people who kind of likes the ambiguous endings in various books. I like that it's amb- ambiguous here because it just feels incomplete. And that something about the incompleteness makes me feel better. Like I said, I have weird reactions. <laughs> so jumping off of that, Joyce, I feel like in hearing this sort of like take on that they all died versus they rode off into the sunset. I feel like my interpretation, my feeling about it was exactly the same as Meg's when I read it for the first time. But I think I have come around to the, they wrote off into the sunset, but it, they're like as good as dead in terms of who they are. Like, I feel like the new mm. animorphs, that's almost a worst, like it's almost worse if they're going trapped off. forever in this war. Yeah, if they're trapped forever in, in war, then they kill themselves to save the universe, right? Like that's <laughs> almost a more noble ending. And I think it fits the like them surviving, but it's bad fits the themes a little more. Um, oh, that's but so yeah. brutal, but that's animal. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, Meg. It's like that John Mulaney quote is you want to think that a miracle happened here, but probably not. <laughs> and it's interesting that this right off into the sunset versus this is how they all go down uh, for me changes what Cassie's ending means. Um, because I feel that if they all die, that means that Cassie is the only one who has successfully left the war behind and she gets the time uh, that Claire mentioned. She gets the time to heal, to move on, to build a new life, to like let it go because, you know, kind of the overall theme of Animorph is like war is horrible and war never ends. So if the the boys continue on this war is horrible and it only ends with your death, then Cassie is really the only one who escapes that cycle. But if the boys are going on for more adventures and riding off into the sunset, that leaves out Cassie as the Susan Pevensey character from the Chronicles of Narnia, where she now no longer is a part of this magical, important work. She has chosen, you know, something different that uh, ostracizes her, like from the group. So maybe I killed uh, all the other Animorphs off to like prove that Cassie made the correct choice to let the war go and gives her a positive ending instead of a left behind story. Or you could say that Cassie turns Susan on on her head sort of and makes it, if this is the analog, then going to Narnia is terrible and it's going to war and Susan's the only survivor in a good way. Liz. So the question I wanted to pose to the group was whether... 
Cassie's ending is doing a Susan Pevensey or whether it's an anti-Susan Pevensey for many of the reasons that Meg just laid out. But another angle of looking on it is Cassie is the one who grows up, who is able to move on and, and reach a version of adulthood that the others don't. And so how to interpret it in that lens sort of depends on exactly how you interpret the end of the Narnia series as well. Um, you know, is it Susan, is she, is she being punished for growing up exactly? Or is she being allowed to like live a life and, and is the survivor for uh, growing up? And so that sort of has a reflection on is Cassie here being, being punished by being left behind from the happy ending ongoing adventures or getting to, getting to actually live her life. Yeah, that's much better than what I said. Uh, John? Maybe it was poor phrasing, but maybe I'll, I, I want to push back a little bit on Meg's idea that Cassie got to choose to be the one that moved past the war. I don't know that that's a choice that any of the other Animorphs get to make, right? People often don't choose not to move past the war. But I also want to argue that Cassie least deserves this any sort of happy ending. And the happy ending that she does get is because she spent the entire series sacrificing her friends, right? <laughs> and we saw this amazing. constantly. Um, we saw this with David, right? She forced Rachel to do to make the hard choice twice, right? I mean, she came up with this plan. Then she, like, she consistently throughout the series forces the difficult decisions onto literally any other, other animorph. And therefore, she is the least scarred by the war. That's exactly why she's the least scarred and why she has the best chance of coming out of the war with any sort of like normal psychology such that any of the six of these uh, humans slash animalites will come out of the war. The fact that she is so willing, unwilling to like band together with the rest of the Animorphs and accept the situation throughout the series is to me like makes, I just can't possibly forgive her for what she does through the series, just the way she acts through the series. Starting in 19, and I'll, I can rant about 19 for hours. Gray knows that I sent her a dissertation on 19. <laughs> And she creates this like Yurk peace movement that is largely ineffective as far as we know, except for one book towards the end where like a hork cuts a tentacle because they needed to make that be a good decision for Cassie. And I won't rant on the peace movement anymore, but I will just say that the only reason that she's allowed to come out of this with a good outcome is because she, she made her friends make the difficult choices for her. Can I jump on that, though? <laughs> I'm not convinced that Cassie has a good outcome. Like, first of all, you guys brought up in the your discussion on it, the very good point that the guy she's with, not all that great. Like, he's kind of douchey. Like, so <laughs> I don't know that that is a happy ending. And besides, it also seems to me in sort of reflecting back, you know, and someone mentioned she didn't really process Rachel's death. I think a more plausible solution instead of a happy ending where she's just like happily adjusted, living her life, doing important things. She never processed any of it. She is, she just locked it all down and it's festering. And I know this because I've done this and I have family that's done this. She's festering. It's not being dealt with and it's all going to explode in like 10 years <laughs> and she's going to be a mess. 
I don't think she has a happy ending. I think she's just avoided dealing with it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Katie. Uh, to first speak to what John said, I actually, Cassie, like reading the book series as an adult, like who knows who I would have identified the most with as a kid, but as an adult, Cassie was like, I felt like I could have been her, like with the way that she early on struggles with the actual, like the blood and violence and actually having to commit violence for good ends and like her moral and ethical struggles and her guilt and her inner conflict and how she still tries to be kind even while just covered in blood all the time like I I feel a lot of emotions about Cassie I really like her (laughs) I see your point John and I I was so upset when she let Tom escape the morph cube because that also it just felt very convoluted plot wise it's like there was there was a third option and it was not this (laughs) it was to do something else but like the story needed her to do that so I guess she did it whatever so that sucked but also I feel like the way that I interpreted Cassie staying behind on earth is like on the one hand yeah like it sucks she doesn't get to go into space because now like in the hypothetical future of the series, like the action would follow like, you know, the core team of the Animorphs doesn't have Cassie in it because she stayed on Earth. But also I don't quite feel like that's a, like that's necessarily a one-to-one parallel to the other characters staying in a magical world and Cassie being in a, a mundane world because the Earth that she's stayed behind on is anything but mundane. And now as the only Animorph left, she's the person who has to like mediate between all these different species that are living on earth now. And she has to navigate earth politics, colliding with alien politics and the other Animorphs, like they're all broken in their own ways. The other Animorphs left earth to heal and she stayed on earth to heal by healing the earth, by like by (laughs) healing her society and the planet. And, And that's Cassie. Casey's comment, only 19, but her mind is older. <laughs> okay, we're going we're gonna to go to oh, Claire. Kevin, Kevin is such time. a good point. I'm so sorry. In the chat. <laughs> yeah, Kevin says, did they leave to heal or did they leave to avoid having to? Mm. Mind explodes. Okay, Liz, I want you to say your comment from the chat also. Folks are ragging on Cassie for some bad choices that she made during the war. Fair enough, but of all of the Animorphs living, she's the only one using her fame and her power to work towards some kind of systemic good. Uh, as Katie was describing some of her, her, her work in intergovernmental affairs and helping the aliens integrate and environmentalism and all this work that she's doing and what's everyone else doing? Sitting on their butts, feeling sorry for themselves in various ways. Like Jake is involved in a bad government shit, as we all know. And Marco's being a movie star. Tobias is just being a hawk. Like <laughs> Axe is in some foreign military. So I guess that's fine. But like uh, with all of that, they learned in this process, only Cassie is actually like using the power that she has as one of the Animorphs to actually be a structural part of the government working to help with the integration of these alien sides. We're, saying how amazing it is that like aliens, these alien societies are integrating reasonably peacefully on earth. Cassie's a big part of that. And she's going to continue being a part of that. I would want to jump on and say, it's possible that you could read that as she's acting out of guilt. 
So you could somehow combine both of those, that she is the only one doing anything meaningful, but it's because she feels so guilty and has no other way to process her guilt. But like, good. They should all feel guilty. <laughs> and she's actually doing <laughs> something with it instead of, just, instead of just having feelings. Like she's actually doing, she's showing up and doing the work. What more can you ask from the girl? Wait, okay, Claire. They should all feel guilty? Well, I mean, they've all killed a lot of people. But they also defended the planet, Liz. But like, so did Cassie, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Claire. So I kind of want to agree completely with what Liz is saying about Cassie, you know, being the only one to, to actually use her power for systemic good. And this actually relates all the way back to something that I was thinking of with the whole riding off into the sunset thing. And like, why can't it just be they ride off and there's adventure out there? And I think a large part of that is because for them, the adventure of what's so satisfying about the adventure in Animorphs is that it is very much in service of some good and some larger purpose. And so I think that essentially the introduction of this, the one, is like, that is their adventure riding off in the sunset of, okay, there is actually this continued, like, larger purpose. And I think that Cassie's ability to be the only one to actually find a larger purpose and contribute to systemic good following the war and not just be aimlessly like, oh, what what am I doing? I'm being a hawk in the woods or whatever. Sorry, that's really unfair to say. I did not mean to say it so so flippantly. But that that means that she doesn't need to to do that, riding off into the purposeful sunset, for want of a better way of saying that. (laughs) That's kind of how I see it. Crap, I forgot the order. Uh, Rena. Thank you. Um, Yeah, going back a little bit to what John said, talking about going off into space versus like staying. One thing that, again, references the letter to fans that Applegate made, um, when she talks about how like, you know, kind of the war is always something you kind of can carry, you have to carry with you. And, you know, the discussion of whether is Cassie healing by staying? Has she healed? Is that a sign of her? Uh, Like staying is a sign of her healing. But I know another thing that always bothered me about the boys always flying off, you know, flying off into space is the idea that, okay, so if war is something that you always can carry with you, is flying off into space to get into another fight the only way that you can cope? Because basically it's saying that Jake can't cope at all unless he's leading a fight. Marco is just bored out of his mind unless he's in a fight. Tobias is being a hawk unless he's in a fight. And it's like their only purpose is to have a fight. And I wasn't sure how, I don't know, that kind of also bothered me that the idea that you know sometimes the war is that you have to stay uh where there's peace and find a way to cope and survive there not that you have to go off and like physically fight in order to cope yeah that's fair casey but they don't go off just to like pick a fight with any baddie alien they can find they're rescuing acts they're rescuing their friend and their you know their shorm in in tobias's case so it's not like they're just like you know going off into the nowhere for no reason it's it's a personal mission and anyway i raised my hand because i wanted to comment on cassie i kind of come down more on on john's side i i am mad at cassie at the end of the books and i know ted you were talking about her battle morph and you said that she's a wolf because she's a survivor to me her battle morph was always her unwillingness to be an animorph she won't go out and like get a new morph of her own she just uses the one that they all have she's like so unwilling to be a part of this fight like to really like buy into it she's so reluctant and although part of that you know I understand because she has these moral convictions 
that are holding her back from it. At the end, I just really get angry with her because of this desire to keep her hands clean that it is at a direct cost to all of the other Animorphs who now have to do more to, you know, get their hands dirty and are more, you know, traumatized, I think, in the process, you know, with, you know as, as John was saying, with, especially with Rachel and David. So I, I find myself resenting her happy ending where she's kind of just fine more or less because I'm like well the reason everyone else isn't fine is because they had to do more for the fight and so her not going to you know try and rescue Axe at the end I'm kind of like Cassie what the fuck like what are you doing like sure you have it like nice on earth and you're doing good work but it to me is kind of like her saying if we had to do this all over again I would almost like not want to be part of the band. Maybe that's a little too harsh, but I, I, I'm frustrated with her at the end. And I, I like a lot of what she does, but I think it comes at a cost to the other Animorphs. Yeah, Emily said in the comments, she basically refused to level up, which I think is a great summary of that. Lauren. I agree with a lot of the criticism that's being lobbed at Cassie about not leveling up and not doing as much as she could have during the war. I do, however, want to point out that she was not really given the decision about whether to go with them to get Axe or not. And if Jake had come to her and said, we're going to do this, are you in? I think she might have said yes, but he came to her and he said, we're doing this, you can't come. And maybe she was relieved and that's what she wanted, but I mean, I think you can't forget that Jake had a role in that decision for her. Yeah. Kevin. So first, since we're on the subject of of Cassie, uh, like... I think of all the characters, she suffered the most from just the flaws in the writing. Like, there are interpretations that could have been put forward where a lot of the stuff that we're really, really mad at her about could ha- they were salvageable. Like, we're talking about them now. Like, you know, just a little, oh, I always had this thought. Like, you know, giving the Morphin Cube, still a bad way to go about it, but I, like, I saw an opportunity, I took it. Like, you know, I- I'm a-, a-, a bit of a pacifist. Like, I will go with you guys for moral support and to, like, help you in a pinch, but I don't really like the idea of, at best, maiming humans, so I'm going to keep it to a, a morph that is, like, you know, just me running away as opposed to a polar bear. So, like, I think that a lot of the stuff that we're giving Cassie crap for, granted, I understand she exists only within the universe of the books, but I feel like that is the writer's failing her, not necessarily an inherent flaw of her character. As far as Jake coping, I would argue that Jake actually had a chance to like recover from all of the trauma, but that was in like book 51 or 52, right before the final invasion. He had already reached his tipping point, and that was the opportunity for him to step back and actually have a normal life afterwards. Unfortunately, due to the events of the war and like just what needed to be done, he was pushed past that and there was no longer any recovery for him. Everybody reaches their breaking point. He reached his and he had to keep going. If he had had the opportunity to like go into therapy and like, you know, pass it off to James or like, you know, one of the other Animorphs, like let Marco actually step up and take the leadership role. He might have like been salvageable, but the war took such a heavy toll on him that there was nothing left. He was a husk of his former self. So of course he was never going to have like a happy ending with Cassie because the person that she fell in love with wasn't there anymore. And as far as the 17,000 Yurks that he killed, everybody on this panel seems to be in agreement that that was a war crime. I'm not on board we with that. We haven't talked about that at all. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm reading the chat and taking notes oh. at the same time. Please <laughs> forgive me. Um, but we can make the argument about whether or not they were non-combatants. But this was the cleanest way to end the war right then. 
and there were consequences <laughs> there were consequences that were coming regardless of his actions if he didn't win the war when he did the andalites were just going to come and you know nuke the earth from orbit or whatever their equivalent was tom running off with uh, the morphing cube also something that had to be dealt with at that moment so he had a lot of bad choices I cannot hold that against him. He did the best he could with what he had and the time he had to think about it. So I'm not on board with the Yerks being innocent bystanders. I understand it was like, you know, a fucking nursery ship or whatever the hell it was. But why why were they there? They were there to infest humans, to literally enslave them. Total enslavement. It's very, very sad. It's very poetic to just like jettison them into space. But no, they were there for nefarious purposes, whether they knew it or not. <laughs> so I, I am not on board with Jake is a war criminal. And, and like, he does not need the defenses of Cassie being like, well, if I'm not a war criminal, then surely you're not. No, they were at war. He did a necessary evil, an evil to be sure, but not a war crime. But like, I just want to say whether or not it's like legally a crime. Jake's character, he feels so bad about the decision that he made. Because he's like, at the Whether fight. or not we, no, but <laughs> whether or not we agree with him, like the last book is so much him suffering as a consequence of that choice, right? Like that's powerfully felt by Jake. Absolutely, because nobody wants to have the blood of 17,000 slugs on their hands. But war crime, no. And okay, I feel like if he could, like, get rid of that, he would actually have, like, taken a step forward in his recovery. Okay, we've moved a little <laughs> bit towards war crime from Cassie. Joy's... I definitely want to talk about Cassie. Um, then, okay. okay, go for it. So, first of all, every piece of Cassie negativity makes my love for her stronger. It is <laughs> mountain... Me too, yes! High five across space and possibly time. All right, so here's one of the things I see about the ending. It's that... All of the other animals kind of jump to get to a new war, to new, to new conflict. They feel alive then. They feel energized. They get out of their ruts. Cassie jumped right away into fighting for her, her own causes immediately. These causes were more pro-social. They're like political. They're environmental. They're getting a college degree. But she just continued to fight. She never stopped fighting. It's the same thing. It's just that hers are more pro-social. And she's shown in previous books that she tends to, uh, once she's part from the rest of the group, she tends to make new connections and trust new people and a buffalo. So just like, I do think she's, she's going to crash in a big way. Don't don't bring up Buffy Human. You're not helping our case. <laughs> Come on, I had I had I had the, the take about the happy ending for the Buffy Human. I get to bring it up. <laughs> Buffy Human did nothing wrong. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> Nicole. So uh, I just wanted to say that uh, Kevin tried to let Cassie off the hook a little bit by blaming it on the writing, and I hear that to some degree. But I actually think that the writing lets Cassie off the hook because the choice that she made to let Tom take the morphing cube was a horrendous decision that by all rights could have lost them the war. The Animorphs could have been dead three days later as a result of that decision. Instead, it was like an extra funny difficulty in like Marco's book. It ultimately didn't have a major effect, a major negative effect. They tried to spin it as a positive effect, which I don't buy. But I actually think that that decision was so bad that they could all have been dead. And if anybody needs to feel guilty, it's her. And I will not let her off the hook due to decisions the writers made because ultimately Cassie is something the writers created. And I think she went from being, a, she's a very sympathetic character. I don't think she should be in charge of anything. And if I was Jake, I would not have taken her on my new mission. Scathing. So I have, a, I've, I've defended Cassie a lot on the podcast before, but I have an observation that it seems like 
the thing that really rankles for people who can't forgive Cassie is that she never became a good soldier. And I think it's really important to the themes of the book that one of the characters always resist that, right? So like, it's totally true that she's the least effective, but like be part of the series is about what becoming a really effective warrior does to you, right? So whatever your personal feelings are on her, I feel like the fact that she is always resisting their struggle is like really intentional and key to the the dynamic. Nicole, I just think there's a difference between not being the most effective soldier soldier and being an active liability to the war effort. Because <laughs> if you're the latter, stay home. Katie. Yeah, someone said like mentioned that Cassie's decision to give Tom the morphing cube in the moment was written as very, I just felt that it would be good. And like, that sucks. Like, that's not good writing. That doesn't make sense. And I feel like if the books had seeded anything that comes up with the taxon resistance or like made it more of a thing that there were like disgruntled yurks who just wanted out and there was like this inner tension in the empire then there was a way to make Cassie's decision still feel reckless and shocking, but also make that little kernel of sense in the same way that her and Aftran in book 19 was a shocking and reckless decision that also could have gotten everybody killed, but still worked out somehow. I also feel like that element of hope and chance is important in a story like this because they make stupid decisions and reckless decisions all the time. And I feel like having reckless decisions that are also all about trust is very important in this kind of story, especially when your characters are 14 years old. Uh, so one Tumblr page that I read a lot, it's called Jake, formerly known as Prince, oh, and it's yes. a great Tumblr for Animorphs. But uh, somebody had a question on that one comparing Cassie's decision in uh, 50 or whatever it is where she lets Tom get away with the morphing cube to Jake's decision in 30 where he stops Marco from pushing Visser 1 off the cliff. And in both cases, like the character motivations were similar. They wanted to stop their friend from doing something that was potentially very harmful to their emotional well-being. And, the, and the, one of the questions was, why does Cassie get so much flack for that? But Jake gets a hard pass and no one ever talks about like that. He stopped Marco from killing Visser one at a pretty pivotal moment. And I just thought it was a really interesting, like comparison about how the writing and like the fandom focuses. So I'm not def necessarily defending either one. Just wanted to throw that out. Yeah. Megan, Lauren want to jump in quickly right. or Lauren, why don't you go first? I was thinking about what Nicole said about staying home. If you can't be a good soldier and I don't know that they would have let her at any point. In fact, I'm pretty sure in one of the books, she tried to quit the team and they wouldn't let her. And then it led me to think about Eric, who really wanted to stay home, but instead they blackmailed him and made him do something against his programming, which he then used as an excuse to turn around and do something that wildly changed their ability to execute their plan. So I'm not sure you have that much of a choice. Meg, you want to jump in? Final thoughts on Cassie? Yeah, I want to highlight something that John has mentioned in the chat that I think is really important, that Cassie falls into a trope of the mystical Black girl or the magical mm -hmm. Black girl. And that, as has been highlighted by several other people in this panel already, she is really failed by the writing of her book so hard that she is 
kind of, I don't want to say like reduced to the trope, but she's very um, directed in, I'm about life. I'm about nature. I can magically communicate with the whales that like excuses her being able to act on feelings instead of fighting and logic. Um, But that is not something that holds up with the hard science fiction world in the rest of the universe. And I feel that a lot of our frustration with Cassie is directed at her kind of almost being put in the wrong story and not given enough support to fully integrate with the rest of the team and how they operate. Mm. That's my closing Cassie thought. Pulling on what Meg just said, the thing that occurred to me the most while listening to you guys discuss the podcast and feeling my raging maelstrom of feminist emotions about things, I feel like we talk a lot about how the ghostwritten books really did Rachel wrong. They also really did Cassie wrong. I think the women, like, I don't remember looking back and being like, oh, yeah, that Jake book or, oh, that Marco book was just so uncomfortable. It's the Cassie and the Rachel books. And I think that just speaks to how much more sexism was just in the consciousness of the late 90s, early 2000s. I think that there's like a a time period thing and the fact that like, you know, 20 years later, we're more conscious of it generally as a society. And maybe that's because we just had Me Too in the last five years and it's like, you know, really on people's thoughts. But I think, you know, a lot of sexism is unconscious. You know, you don't even know you're doing it. And I think that's perhaps what we see with Cassie and Rachel's books and their arcs and their tropiness and all of that can just be chalked up to unconscious sexism and unconscious racism of the time. Uh, I think that we will pivot away from direct ending thoughts to get some like series overall things. If you want to throw in ending stuff when you're talking about other stuff, that's totally fine. There's going to be too much for us to talk about in an hour anyway. But people had some really interesting kind of like big questions that I want to give people a chance to respond to. We also have some people here who have particular things based on their like area of expertise. So I thought maybe we could do that now, whether or not it it. edits in or not. So we haven't even talked about this on the podcast, but there is an Animorphs movie that just got announced that is in the early stages of development. And Meg, you were just pitching your thoughts about an Animorphs TV show. And since you're a screenwriter, do you want to give us your like vision? Yeah. So my vision has everything. No. um... (laughs) So I really don't, agree with the idea of adapting books to film. I think more books should be done into like long form storytelling, like a television series, because pretty much the thing you have to sacrifice the most of to get to those big action set pieces is the time to learn about the characters and like uh, emotionally attached to them. So uh, usually film adaptations will try to shortcut that by, you know, completely like rewriting scenes or like adding in new scenes or combining two characters into one person. So if I had a wish list, if I was show running uh, an Animorphs television series, I would also have it be animated because one of the really great things about animation is having uh, a really intricate control over your mood and your tone and your pacing with, you know, your use of color, emotion, light, all that, all that sort of stuff. And also because so much of this very fantastical story is about most of the time we're animals, we're a bunch of different animals. And a lot of our audiences today are very sophisticated and can pick out well, that's computer generated. Well, that's a green screenshot. But if you were developing it inside of an animated world, you would have the style of your creatures would perfectly match the style of your normal human characters and would like also coordinate with the style of the aliens themselves. I may not have every single book in there, 
but I do smaller seasons of six or seven episodes each with each of the characters' books per season. And then we would have a central theme of each season, kind of like how each of the different arcs of books uh, follow. So like the first arc of everybody's books is just deciding why am I in this war? And like the second arc is like, what makes me keep fighting what I want to give up? And like the third arc is what are the bigger implications for what we're doing? And it could just be really incredible and really awesome for art style. It would be... People just like will normally just say Avatar The Last Airbender because that is one of the greatest American television shows we've had. But something more along the lines of what anime does with their long form storytelling. But I would like to push for a really unique art style that we don't often see. I would just like this to stand out so it doesn't just look like a copy paste of an anime or like what we normally see in a show. And I... There's just so many good art styles and so many good artists. And we really kind of just see the same things over and over and over in animation. And since Animorphs is a completely unique reading experience, unlike anything else in the middle grade, I think an Animorphs television series deserves to have its own visual voice unique from anything else we've ever seen on television. But this isn't something I've ever considered seriously or stayed up late <laughs> talking about. <sighs> Anyway, I love animation and more stuff should be animated. Yeah, Katie. Can I? Oh. Uh, so yeah, I was going to agree uh, with Meg. And not just saying this because I'm also an artist, but like 1000% Animorphs needs to be animated. Like with regards to like the sophisticated ability of current audiences to get taken out of a story by green screening or CGI, but also because I believe like animation would have that same... It would echo the books in that the books are like, oh, they're colorful. The covers are goofy. They're very short. They're middle grade. This can't be very serious. And a lot of people have that gut reaction to animation. And also the stories, like a lot of them are so light. They go to these really deep emotional places. And I feel like animation would reflect sort of that, that overall, that balance between very light and upbeat, like middle grade kid adventures where they go to the mall or they get into weird morphing hijinks or they're they're being friends and just like the bizarre aliens and the bizarre places that they go to but then also animation is capable of conveying incredible depth of emotion as well <laughs> and also katie i agree with absolutely everything and something else is we have like 54 of these stories of these episodes to tell and like any project takes a long time to do and having uh, animated characters, we could keep the character designs consistent mm -hmm. so the kids aren't very obviously aging every time we come back for our season two <laughs> season three. That's a very good point too. Really? So I just have two major like reservations that keep me from enthusiastically applauding the idea of a movie or a TV show. One is that, as has been discussed ad nauseum on this show, there are a lot of problematic elements. And are you going to update those? Are you going to be faithful? It is really hard to update something and still maintain the character. Like the only thing I feel like I've ever seen that updated successfully is the recent Babysitter's Club adaptation. That's like this seamless, I don't know if any of you all have engaged with it, but it is charming. It captures the spirit of the books and the, you know, the plot is basically the same, but there's all these tiny touches that they've just gently updated. For example, Marianne is black unmentioned you know just like they've gently fixed some of the uh hashtag all white and you know some of the more problematic elements the other reason why i'm 
hesitant is, oh, no, can I remember my other reason? It was a really important reason. <laughs> um, Emily, second. do you want yes. to talk for a second about audiobooks? And then if you think of your other thing. Oh, well, yeah, I don't mind talking about audiobooks. I am super excited to tell everyone that I have been given permission to share that there will be more audiobooks. Yay! I'm not allowed to tell you how many. I'm not allowed to tell you when, but suffice it to say, we'll be recording this fall and huzzah. Huzzah. That's amazing. Exclusive update, you guys. You did hear it here first. (laughs) Yes, I had to get special permission from Scholastic themselves. Oh I choose God. to believe you'll be recording. <laughs> so I cool. choose to believe the recording will be made in this closet where you currently are. <laughs> <laughs> Inaccurate, but another closet. Head cannon. <laughs> Liz, do you want to jump in on areas of expertise? Yes, I do. Well, yes, I do want to jump in with areas of expertise. My area of expertise is the thing that I was obsessed with in middle school, which is the X-Files. And so I have a big question about Marco's <laughs> television show, which is said to be taking over the old time slot of the X-Files. Do they mean Friday night or Sunday night? Because in season four of the X-Files, they changed from Friday night to Sunday night. And what does that imply? At the time, Friday night was notoriously a dead zone for television. That that it was a really bad time slot. Many nerds know it as where Firefly was set to die. But X-Files was this weird exception that really uh, that really took off and became popular in the time slot. So I wonder if Marco just doesn't know that his time slot is terrible, that his TV shows on Friday night in the bad spot, or did they mean Sunday night? And in fact, did Kay Applegate already know that the X-Files was going to be go off the air in 2002, which is when this portion of the book is set, and that thus the Sunday night time slot was going to be... Oh. No. <laughs> I know, right before the plot twist! No! <laughs> All right, Emily, did you have something to say about the television show situation? Or something else to say? Yes, no, I remembered my second caveat about why I'm unsure that a, a TV show or a movie could be any good. The fact that the, the best part of each book is that like internal struggle that the character is having. And short of narration, I don't see how you can portray that. And narration always falls flat when it comes to those like internal struggles. I just, you know, I worry that it's going to end up being just another action movie or just another action show, which isn't the point of Animorphs at all. What makes Animorphs so great is the wrestling with these moral and like leadership and violence issues internally and them trying to figure out what is right and what is good and I don't see I have not I have yet to see Hollywood ever do that successfully let alone for like a middle grade aimed thing and I just I don't trust Hollywood to do that justice which is sad it occurs to me that we're getting a graphic novel adaptation of the animal that's true as well which will <laughs> certainly have narration and visuals Emily I the graphic novel has kind of a response like to that both worlds oh well um For a visual medium like film, it is true that the internal thoughts of your character is like something that's greatly lost, but I feel that's the responsibility of the music and the sound design is to support the internal struggles that we no longer read. But I really agree that I think a graphic novel is actually a really good place to take it because you get the advantage of like the beautiful visuals and kind of the same sort of camera language you may even see in a a film series but you also get to keep a significant portion of the test. Text. Words are hard. That was too many letters. I think I added an extra one in. But 
I am really excited to see what comes from the graphic novel adaptation of Animorphs more than I Kevin. am for the film. Kevin, um, you had thoughts for Emily's question? Yes. Uh, in regards to her concern about like the narration and like the internal monologue being incredibly important, if you have not watched it, I would invite you to check out the original run of Teen Titans. You know, it, it was a very diverse cast. And what they would do is they would always start an episode with like one character and there would be like five minutes of building with that character. And it was very, very useful in getting like their perspective on the events before the whole group was brought in. So you could have something similar in like an animated Animorphs where like each episode, you know, however you want to organize it, starts off in like, you know, uh, I don't know, Jake wakes up in the morning and, you know, his mother is like giving him crap for like being late for school or like just those little details it like sets the scene and then builds from there. So whatever adventures that they go on happens from their perspective. It follows that character throughout the episode. It's not perfect, but it can be done relatively well. Definitely. I think following a particular character from episode to episode isn't the issue. It's capturing the internal conflict that is just this mental wrestling. That you know, It's not something that you can put in dialogue because that's you know awkward for everyone. And I'm not even sure that the book's give you enough opportunity to use music the way Meg was suggesting. Like, it's not that it can't be done. I just have basically 0.05% faith in Hollywood <laughs> of doing it at all, let alone successfully. So, Well, if it was right. done by me, I would do it right. <laughs> yeah. And I would get if a I bunch of other people. The money, I'd produce you, Meg. How do we start <laughs> this viral campaign? <laughs> Kickstarter Somebody is our just friend. give me a lot of money. And I'll make it happen. Hey, so Michael Grant has retweeted the Animorphology account twice. He has really? not followed us yet, but we're working on it. <laughs> we're moving up in the world. Yeah, you are. Katie had another thought on this topic. So Katie, you go first. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I just had a comment about um, with regards to the graphic novel. Really exciting news. I totally agree. Not just because I also love comics, but comics are a great medium for showing action visually and giving the like you know having presenting a very visual story while also letting the reader have a window into the character's interior thoughts in a very natural and well integrated way that's more difficult for a medium like film or tv to achieve i also want to say that when i first saw the initial like the previews that the artist has been releasing of like little snapshots of the art that he's drawn for the graphic novel so far. I really, really like how it's got this great balance between realistic touches that give the creatures and the characters a sense of physicality and also having it be a more stylized look that makes them, you know, look like, it looks like a kid's series because it, it is and it should be. And it also lets them emote really clearly in the way that stylized characters can. I feel like it's sort of easy for emotions on human characters' faces, especially to kind of get muddied or unclear in like very, very realistic comic styles. And so I'm, I'm very happy with the art style of the graphic novel, personally. Like I can see these characters like having fun together and having like very good like and showing emotions clearly and also getting into really bloody fights without those feeling like too cartoony or too stylized so i'm i'm excited to see where it goes yeah and i don't know if you saw the panel uh there was a panel that chris grind posted at, at some point with viscer three and like the expressiveness of viscer three's like glower with his like drooped ears yet like no mouth i was like mm. oh my god this is everything that i want to see that was like, good i'm also super excited <laughs> my one note is i think like the andalites are like 
like they have like sort of smaller human bodies but like really chunky horse bodies and it's very funny <laughs> anyone who hasn't seen the graphic novel artwork yet get ready so for these andalites <laughs> they're some big boys but it's fun i like the art style they're much hairier than i thought they'd be we're not going to get on that topic it's <laughs> a nice attempt to transition we're shutting it down lauren lauren so speaking of Visser 3, I noticed that Gray has a special guest in the studio with her. Um, <laughs> and I was wondering if Visser 3 would like to say anything about the end of the series and uh, how she slash he feels about it. Visser 3, as is Visser 3's want, scratched me and left. So um, <laughs> she, she's no longer in the studio. So one of the questions was about Jake's guilt over the 17,000 Yerks instead of the 17 human auxiliaries. And I had not put those 17 numbers together. That's a really nice connection. What does that mean? So I noticed that you in uh, episode 53, since I just marathoned all those last three episodes today, <laughs> you know, one of the things you complained about in 53 was how they were, they were fridging the auxiliaries by just kind of killing them off for Jake's emotional like character arc. But then in book 54, they don't get mentioned as part of his arc at all, which I felt was even more of an injustice to the poor auxiliaries because they were so epic and deserved so much better. But um, it just really, it really bothered me that Jake was like, I feel so guilty. Was it war crime? Was it not war, war crime? I don't know. Should I have flushed the yurks? I don't know. But I'm like, you told 17 kids that they had to go into battle to cause a diversion, knowing that they would probably like some of them would die and probably like get injured. And like, he never ever questions like, was that the right decision? Like, I don't know. Those were human lives. Maybe I should have cared. Like he, that, he, that never comes up again. And that really bothered me about book 54. Claire. Oh, well, I guess I, I have a, a little bit of a response to that. I definitely think that as a commander, sending people who are working for you in some sense, or, you know, are soldiers who agreed to do this into battle, and then they die is very, very different from, and I know there's been some back and forth in the chat about, like, are the Yerks that are in the pool civilians? Are they combatants? How does that influence how we see what Jake does in flushing the 17,000 Yerks? But I do think that there is a big difference in sending soldiers into battle versus slaughtering a whole bunch of beings who are not at that point, at least, in any way capable of defending themselves. Mm. Joyce just put a comment in the chat. She would have liked it if one auxiliary had lived and just hated Jake, which is the best villain backstory, as Gray points out. Katie. Oh, uh, with regards to the Yerks in the pool, one thing that I've sort of thought about that I don't like thinking about because it makes me feel upset is a detail that got dropped. I forget where in this series, but that most of the Yerks in the peace movement are unhosted by choice. And all of the Yerks that were not hosted, who got rescued from the Earth pool when it got blown up, were sent to the pool ship. So Jake just flushed the entire Yerkese movement. <laughs> Potentially. Oh I hate thinking about that. And also the Yerkese movement is a drop plot thread that like I personally feel really frustrated by because I like the yeah. idea so much. But yeah, there's a there's a thought. But also that aside, like there are so many more Yerks than have hosts. Like it's just not physically possible. And like maybe they do other stuff. Like maybe they have little computer terminals in the pool that they use. Like maybe they're just a bunch of office workers in there in Yerk terms. And also like 
if they were hatched into the empire, like it wasn't really their decision to become soldiers and get stuck on this, you know, on this mission. They really didn't have a choice. The York Empire doesn't really let you be a civilian. So on like, there might've been a whole lot of real jerks in that pool who were just raring to reinfest their hosts and take over the earth. But I bet, you know, there's like a non-zero number of Yorks in that pool who were just trying to get by. And maybe some also non-zero amount who were like actively fighting for change and just were in the wrong pool at the wrong time when Jake had Axe push that button. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. This is another reason why we need the Yerk Chronicles. Because it's yes. like not clear to me how Yerk society functions and whether those Yorks were there by choice and are there Yerk civilians in pools on, you know, Yerk Prime or whatever? What, Esplan's weird and light obsession in the Hork Creature Chronicles wasn't enough? <laughs> <laughs> you want to hear from someone besides Visser 3? Someone who's not a Visser, maybe? I have a I have a question about Yerks, and is it that how much capability do they have for sentient thought, like outside of what they learned from their morphs? Like, did they learn the level of like compassion and empathy from being in humans? Or is that something that they kind of like always had and learned Ooh. as a, as a species? Cause you know, initially a lot of the host bodies that they've overtaken aren't at the same level of, of sentience. Like their original planet, I think they came from is they had this really direct symbiosis with uh, another uh, species on their planet. And it's not, you know, so Aftron has to struggle with the fact that is it inherently wrong to be a parasite? And in this original symbiotic relationship, I don't think it was. But the question is, is once you start, you know, really tamping down uh, and like really uh, attacking and taking over these different and much more complex societies and individuals and people open-ended question for chat because i lost my train of thought <laughs> joyce okay so i'm thinking about repeating a comment that i made in one of the episodes about uh speculation about what could have been done with the with the peace movement and that's basically uh have them more involved in the ending in the ending several books and then have one of them go aboard the the pool ship either along with Eric or like instead of him and then be so horrified by the spacing that they go, Nope, Nope, Nope. I'm not even letting, I'm not even letting you kill this fanatics on the, on the blade ship. And then at the, and then that means that a few pages later when, um, when Jake is going, maybe I should just stop trying to fight for these taxons and these Yerks with the morphing cube. And I should just like let the oh, analytes yeah, come in. Then Cassie could, could go, no, no, you have to, be, you have to maintain the deal. Definitely agree that it would have been a lot more powerful uh, with the, with the flushing of the Yerks. If it had been a member of the Yerk peace movement on the ship, who was horrified by that and then drained away the, the power in the, weapons so that then they couldn't fire on the blade ship i feel like that would have had a lot bigger impact that would have ruled that would, that would have been incredible that would have removed the problem where they totally rewrote who the chi were claire did your question about like species programming have anything to do with york stuff yeah absolutely i think it has to do with every single species that we encounter including humans right i think we get uh, a lot of different species who have various levels of strictness in what they are sort of programmed to do. And I mean that in the sense of either like the chi, it's literal programming uh, or, you know, machine programming in some sense versus these other biological creatures. Although I guess hork are also, you know, programmed biologically by the Arn, but that's that's like another thing. So I guess my, my question is for all the species that we encounter, um, 
what can you come back to me i'm sorry i need to actually better i just like want people to talk about this basically staying on weird aliens though nicole do you want to bring up the texan question yes, please. You, you wanted to raise sure i think it's interesting that the books kind of engage with this idea of the texans and or the yurks permanently morphing so becoming nothlets on mass and ultimately, that's what the taxons do, right? They're big, sentient snakes living in, what, South America? The books never, I don't think, engage with the fact that that seems to be a genocidal act. And it may be self-chosen, but these snakes presumably cannot breed more sentient snakes who carry on the taxon legacy. Um, so they are going to eventually die, and then there will be no more Texans. If they have babies, they are just more big old snakes. Uh, so I just think that's an interesting thing that seems to get sort of just glossed over. Yeah, I like that's such a good point. And I feel like it's so not in the text. It didn't even really register that that's what was happening. It is though, <laughs> Meg, right? Meg just said from tax on to tax off. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Their whole society goes from tax on to tax off. Episode title for real. <laughs> oh my God. The animal okay, kid. This hand, hand first. On this hand. Stu Jeremy tax hasn't gone to talk. Jeremy, I just wanted to ask a question based on what Nicole said. What happens if Nofflets reproduce? Presumably, it's, it's just, just more like the animals. Yeah. yeah, right. So this would be the final generation of tax offs. <laughs> yeah, the books don't <laughs> grapple with that. Uh, Katie, oh. hey, you had a comment on that? Oh, yeah. It was just, I actually read a really good fanfic. Uh, one of the first ones I ever read, actually. Um, and it gave me emotions. And it was about a group of yurks who had morphed into orcas. And they had a little pot. Yes. And they, and one of the Yerks had had, you know, a, a child, as you do when you're an orca, and this is your life now. And the child was a, a normal orca. And so they had to kind of like, there was just that, like the story was about other stuff, but there was that underlying sense of like, we got to live, but we don't get to continue as a species on this planet. This is the end of us. And that's a very, very heavy thing. Like, that's a huge sacrifice to have to make. But if their whole existence was based around the idea that they do not want to be themselves, like, I agree with you, like, the, the, the losing the, the mental acuity is a huge thing, but... Like their, their whole, like their whole purpose throughout this entire book is to be anything other than what they are. And I feel like maybe, um, I feel like maybe that might be a function or like a thing that's impressed upon them by their own empire in a way, because how do you make people who are happy being in their own bodies want to infest other sapient species and take them over? It's by telling them that they're not good enough as themselves. It's by saying we as a people deserve to conquer these other creatures with more with better bodies than us because we deserve more than what we are already because what we are already is not enough and that's i think there's a lot to unpack there and i feel like the books could have gone deeper into that what we see of them is them striving to be more than what they are and it's because they have been told that what they are is not good enough when they're just an animal like any other animal that's perfectly evolved for whatever environment they evolved in. And they're like, they're real people inside their little slug bodies. And 
they, you know, they just don't think that's good enough. I just wanted to quickly remind everyone that DNA in the Animorph series works differently <laughs> than DNA in the real world. So it's possible that we could have, you know, intelligent anacondas. Who knows? <laughs> Fingers crossed. That's, that's oh, yeah. The Elemist owes them. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Elemist, work your magic. Rena. Yeah, I think uh, the series does, like, in a very tiny way, actually sort of address this with Tobias, because it's often sort of implied that he has a sort of, like, spiritual connection to his Andalite side, even though Elfinger was a Nothlet when he was born. So, and then, like, in 33, where he gets, like, the sort of memory dump, and then it's sort of like, is did that come from his, from the memory dump in book one, or was that an actual, like, Andalite sort of spiritual experience? We don't know. But I feel like it's, like, it could be hinted that the series says that there is a sort of connection that transcends being a Nothlet that can be passed down but I don't know that that would count as being like any kind of like sapient creature or anything like that but it does say that there's something maybe there might be something but Tobias wasn't born able to like thought speak because his father was an Andalite so unless you take that fluke in book one as canon where he like manages (laughs) to thought speak or hear Jake no that was Jake (laughs) (laughs) so there's no excuse for it if it's Jake Liz. I was wondering about that purple box that uh, the Visser gets put in at the Hague that seems to allow the Visser to like see and hear and speak in some way. That seems like a path forward for the Yerks. Put them all in purple boxes. <laughs> you yes, have have hands. <laughs> they can take I mean, hands. Okay, it seems so like the I most know. ethical path for them might be purple box for everyone. Okay. I don't know if <laughs> y'all have seen, um, there was a robotic fish bowl designed with wheels on it, and whichever direction the fish swam in the bowl, once it got a certain distance to the edge, the bowl would move forward. So you could like attach additional motor capabilities onto this box to give a yerk basically a technological body that they could maneuver around and use to navigate their world. So instead of like trying to give them a completely new body so they could exist in this world, maybe we take the non-ableist approach and find a way to adapt the world to like let their bodies navigate in it. It would be like Megamind with Minion. Oh my gosh, I love Megamind. All right, Emily. Basically, I'm sitting here going, oh, it would, it confused me when it was Cassie that suggested let's make them all anacondas and put them in the rainforest. Um, Cassie, of all people, would know that you insert that many snakes into a balanced biome. Yeah. And you know what? <laughs> Things are going to go to shit. Like, I don't see how <laughs> that is in any way sustainable. And it is, of course, not at all touched on. And... <sighs> This is why Cassie shouldn't be in charge of anything. (laughs) Kevin. I I was going to say, this is actually a very good segue into the Chi because we actually do have a model, thanks to Eric, for, you know, keeping Yerks in, like, a body that can, like, sustain them with Candrona rays. And, you know, provided there wasn't already a Chi, like, controlling that body, they could have fully functional forms and, like, not have to enslave anyone, not have to be a parasite. You could have all, like, hell, I'm willing to bet the Chi can see a lot better than we can. They can probably, like, they got stereos in there or something. Like, they probably have an internet hookup. Like, that sounds awesome. Maybe, maybe (laughs) the Chi should, like, get off their high horses and be, like, you know, this whole non-combatant stuff and be like, hey, you know, the best way to avoid all of this killing, we have this thing that, you know, we could just, like, make more of these and then your problem is solved, sir. Jeremy, do you want to say the thing that you said in the chat? And more. <laughs> not to, not to 
reclaim the mantle of person complaining about the end of the series. But I really <laughs> It's I a great really mantle. You've got excellent this, company. Thank you. It's it's a little warm these days, but I'll I'll wear it anyway. <laughs> I, I think the series is really at its most interesting when it's dealing with this question of how do species coexist? And you've got that like you asked um at the very beginning, and I don't even know it's part of the podcast or was part of the introductions, what are the most important books in the series? Maybe something someone put in the chat. For me, the most important book is still the one that gave me the nightmares, which is book six. When we get to actually see the experience of having a yerk in your head from Jake's perspective, who at that point we know and are, you know, drawn to as a main character. And that to me just kind of frames the whole series of what this question of what do you do with the yerks is pivotal. And we get all, I think the reason we're so frustrated with Cassie is because we get that moment where she makes this intuitive call instead of thinking through, oh, we can use the box to solve this problem. Like the books let you, the reader, put that together, but they don't let Cassie put that together. Mm, and yeah. instead we get this ending where we just flush the yerks into space and put Visser 3 in a box instead of finding something to do with the yerks. Meanwhile, the taxons become pivotal without actually, as we've been saying, getting into the question of self-genocide. And the Chi, who have this really fascinating place in a world where they have all the power but will only use it in circumscribed ways, get shunted aside, forgotten about for 15 books, and then turned into some sort of pale imitation of themselves. And something happened in the chat, and I am nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Casey? Step one, put a yuk in a box. <laughs> I'm not gonna go any further. We've got the our, best thing that's ever happened on this podcast. We've got our ending tag now. <laughs> Coward. <laughs> oh yeah, Liz, Jeremy, what what you were saying reminded me of something that Liz told me today, which was she would love to see what would have happened if all these different groups, like interest groups, had sat down for like a negotiation at like instead of a battle at the end. And I was like, what if Cassie had been working towards that? She wasn't. She didn't try to push for that at all. That would have been so interesting. Katie. Jenny, you're exactly right. And I think also it would have probably resulted in a lot less people coming away with this very strong sense of passionate Cassie hate if she had been more involved in, you know, what where her talents lay, which was in trying to bring people together. Like if the story had let her have that, like have that be her thing instead of just kind of not being the best warrior. Like she would have had more, like instead of going to Australia, what was that? She could have been negotiating or trying something or doing, ah, but yeah, good point. Agreed. We seem to be so frustrated about, you know, whether it's the ending or whether it's the particular character's choices is the, we're judging it against what we think it should have been. Like we're judging it against its own potential because we love so much of this series and the deep dives it does take into these sort of questions and like the morality and the logistics of it. And the fact that the ending of the series didn't really take that same self-examination that we've come to love and expect from these books. And it sort of paints the characters to the sort of one-dimensional characters we began with, just a completely different one-dimensional character from where we started. Claire, these books deal a lot with instincts and even programming of species. And I wonder specifically about how you see how this idea of a species instincts or programming, how that's explored through the various species, including the Yerks, the Chi, Pork Bajir, the Taxons, how you see that quite varied, but kind of reductive in some ways exploration as commentary on human programming and instincts, especially like moral instinct, but maybe other instincts as well. Well, it's weird that like, so like taxons are kind of like, like they get a bad reputation as like they're, I mean, the Yerks do too, I guess, but they're like biologically evil, whatever that means. But like none of the animals that they morph into, they're like, you know, I guess ants are like pretty scary, but they're not like, 
evil, evil right like i don't know it's not but, wrong to be an ant right, it's like somehow right. the mixture of like these intense instincts plus like sapient minds becomes bad somehow Right. I guess I, I also just think it's been interesting to me to hear a lot about people's very strong reactions against what I see as sort of like instinct based decision making, especially on the part of Cassie. But also, you know, I think the other Animorphs do it throughout as well. I think they're often going based on some sort of moral instinct of some kind or another. Anyway, I think that we're maybe like less that. inclined to to take that like and just leave it at that with humans and we're more willing to say like oh it's just the instinct for for all these other animals meg something that's interesting is a lot of times we fight against the instincts of the animals that we morph into that there is like a baseline behavior and it's accepted every single type of this animal has a sort of baseline behavior but it's like how nobody thinks that they have an accent when they're talking because they feel like the way that they speak and talk is like the default. However, a lot of the Animorphs do make their choices on their own instinct. That's like, oh, it's the instinct of a human to fight. It's the instinct of a human like to survive. We dive into what instinct means for every single enemy we fight, every single alien we encounter, and every single morph we do. And even though it's not explicitly stated in the text, I would say that the summation of the whole series is what is the instinctual baseline for a human. Claire. Oh, I guess... I cannot defend the retconning of chi programming, but I feel like you could see it as a commentary <laughs> of like the the sort of inconsistency of how humans enact their moral instincts and and their programming. I like I oh sorry, I wanted to comment on we do get a little dose of that with regards to like the aliens that experience human morph and human emotions, like the way that Axe talks about human instincts and the way that Edris talks about human instincts when she first infests one and gets a taste of it. And I feel like it ties into what Jenny said in the last episode about how one of the ideas of the series is that humans are basically good and good and driven and want to fight and survive. And I feel like when you're looking for it, you can see that planted throughout the book as like, okay, this is like the base instinct of like a bear or a dolphin or a whatever. And this is the base driving instinct of a human is fight, survive, nebulously be good, I guess. Yeah, I love that. Joyce. Okay, so on, on human instincts from Axe's point of view, his human morph is made up of four people and two of them are Rachel and Jake, who have, well, Jake starts off being very much like Rachel, he's very impulsive. So uh, I kind of imagine that he's just got double dose of being an impulsive person, and that's part of why he's uh, the way he is. But I'm sorry, that's not, that's not as uh, involved with some of the other stuff. No, that's legit. All right, so I want to hear if people had the chance to meet Apple Grant, K. Apple Grant, and Michael Grant, what would you say to them in person? I would ask them if they regret letting uh, as many ghostwriters write for the series as they did. <laughs> That's like, what you would use your time to do? <laughs> no, no, no. Do I, you I, regret I, your choices? No, no. So, like, if, if I only had the one question to ask them, I would really want to know what they thought about it. Because, like, again, they clearly had a narrative uh, that yeah. was kind of co-opted by the nonsense of many other people. And I think we're all in agreement that the ghost-written uh, books are far and away the weakest of the series. 
Oh, yeah. Do they think that, uh, you know, having a baby, all of the other stuff, like, they're all very good excuses. I do not fault them for it. But given the opportunity, was there a story there that they did not get to tell the way like they that. wanted to tell it? I like that formulation of the question. <laughs> do you regret your baby? No, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> the question that's like, what story would you have wanted to tell with those 20 books if you could have had full writing control? Exactly. My question would have been something kind of similar. So I felt like, you know, in the first several books, maybe all the way up to book number 26, there was a real arc of um, hope and love is like the answer and like hope is always valid and like everything kind of ended very hopeful. And then we had the 20 like books that were, you know, they didn't really have an arc for those 20. And then we had the really hard hitting finale of, of winding down. And I, I would have loved to know if they had in, had intended to have like an arc that moved steadily from the hope down to the to the ending, or if they had like other arcs of like, like other just emotional arcs planned out to know like where they would have gone. And if they would have taken things, you know, if certain events would have impacted that thought, I just would have loved to see like the overall arc, like if they ever had a plan for that. And like, from start to finish. What I'd want to ask them is, have you ever had ideas come to you for more of the story? Because I, I know a lot of writers talk about like, you know, after they've finished something and closed it off, they've always got more ideas, you know, that these characters sort of live and come back to them because they're almost their own people at that point. And so I'd be curious, what if anything, she and he sort of had appear in their heads and like, where would not that they should or would, but if they could, where did these characters go? What more did they want to say and write? I don't know. I, I would find that interesting. Yeah. Relatedly, my question for them would be like, what's the best idea for Animorphs that didn't make it into the book Yes, or the worst, yes. but your favorite. That's also super interesting because they've been super prolific. Like they've just mm. continued churning out books yeah. since Animorphs ended. Right. So like it's sort of ancient history for them because they've probably written twice as much as Animorphs in the time since it ended. So one of my questions actually directly ties into that, which is, I wonder how, because they were relatively fresh writers when they were working on Animorphs. And since then, they have been extremely prolific. They've, yeah, they've, they've written so much. Michael Grant's written like three series since then. And Kay Applegate's written a ton of books too. And I wonder how the process of writing Animorphs, like not just how they crafted the story, but also the actual grunt work of like the insane update schedule they were put on first of all and then just like, like the daily like task of writing and pushing through that story and having to craft it at the same time has informed how they approach writing since then and maybe how they approach things like pacing and characterization and plotting and world building like what pieces of the Animorphs process are in their later works because I bet they're maybe they could point to stuff and be like, oh, writing Animorphs helped us better with X or Y. And I think that would be really cool. Because like anything that you create informs in some way everything you make after that. And Animorphs was such a big part of their lives and their career that I like, I'm sure that it's had an effect on what they've made after. And I think also what I would ask them is, what if anything Scholastic made them take out of an outline or a book? Ooh, or maybe yes. what Scholastic pressured them to put in? And where? Yeah, <laughs> because That's they were writing. Cool. They were writing a book for children in the late '90s, like an era where media was, you know, pretty heavily like censored and manipulated for consumption by kids and by I a giant like publisher. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> So this is actually kind of potentially connected to that in that I think 
I would be fascinated to hear from them if the role they originally imagined for the Elmist and Cryak ended up changing as the series went on. Because I have to believe that they had a different vision and just like, I don't know, through ghostwriting or something like that, they got dropped. It's just so, so weird to me that they peppered them into the series. They had an entire Elmist Chronicles book and then near the end, near the end. And then the only role that either of them played was just say like, good job, Rachel. (laughs) And I just, I feel like in order for them to have included them in the first place, there had to be more of an end game imagined at the beginning. What are those other morphs that they wanted to write? What are the other animals that they wanted to like? Because yeah, I'm, I'm just, they're obviously such animal lovers. I'm sure they had like a nope. list a million li- miles long of like, Casey, oh, it'd be I, cool if they turned into XYZ. I know, the, I know the answer to that. And that's after they wrote 12 books, they thought they were out of animals. <laughs> <laughs> But they like came up with so many. Okay, so the answer is I know, but they, they, that's, how, that's how much they were like burning the midnight oil. They were just like not. They had no ideas. Well, I wonder if like now, years later, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. we should have had a such and such. We've morph. learned some new animals now. Yeah, yeah. and yet <laughs> no giraffe morph. So I did not get to check that box off. <laughs> She's not bitter though. She's good. Oh yeah, but great. Did you get bingo? And how many times? <laughs> No, unless you count Super Rachel not going with Cryak as them defeating Cryak, which I'm no, going no, to. No, Megamorphs 4 was them defeating Cryak. Megamorphs 4 as them defeating Cryak, which I'm going to because otherwise I don't get bingo. And I really <laughs> want to get bingo. I think it counts. It counts. I just wanted to add to what Katie was saying about things they didn't do. And apologies if somebody said this since following the chat and the audio is hard. I'd love to hear what they would have done differently if they're writing for adults rather than for a middle grade Ooh, audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The one thing I would say to them probably wouldn't be a question. It would mostly be a, hey, thank you for taking children oh. seriously. Thank you for mm-hmm. writing to us seriously. And thank you for presenting such like difficult topics in such a way that we are even now, for some of us, 20 years later, coming back to revisit and still talk about that, do you know what? There's not a really nice bow on the end of the series. And they gave us this really wonderful and sincere invitation to continue on these sort of discussions. And it's really like, I think this book series has defined kind of more than anything, my own thought process as a person and how I interact with other people. That and Terry Pratchett. Maybe we should put that out. This should just all be about Animorphs. <laughs> I, I was going to say the same thing. I sort of got flat-footed on the question part because I realized, oh, what I wanted to say wasn't a question. It was just, I guess I would want to ask, do you have any idea how impactful this was on a whole generation of kids? And like, do you understand how much it meant to so many Aww. of us? How much I, like, no joke, how much I learned about animals and like, uh, it just the impact. I am curious if a creator like that can ever understand the depth of the impact of what they've created. I don't know. I will say they were on a Comic-Con panel with Chris Grind talking about the, the graphic novel, and they were all incredibly charming. But they were basically like, yeah, Chris Grind did all the work. We didn't have anything to do with this. He's amazing. We haven't, like, we're so humbled that people love these books that we wrote 20 years ago, and we have no idea how to understand it. So I, that's worth <laughs> checking out. One good thing and one nerve-wracking thing about both of these authors being very active on social media is they see you, <laughs> and they reply to your stuff sometimes. 
And on the couple, like my first reaction when you guys pose this question is what would you say to Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant is now I've had the opportunity to say stuff at them uh, through no, <laughs> no action of my own. And what I said was, well, first I took a walk around the apartment to calm down because what the hell, Catherine Applegate just retweeted me. But then I was like, what do I, like, how do you, what do you say in like 200 something characters? And it was like, thank you. Like, even though I didn't read the books as a kid, it was my reaction and my feeling towards them is just, thank you for inspiring me so many years after writing these books, because that's really the core of it for me is they created a really excellent piece of media that people are going to be talking about for years and years and years. And that's really, really awesome. And I feel like they should feel good about that all the time, that they've had this effect on so many people. Actually, I saw in my newsfeed just this week, actually, a thing that Scholastic posted about Apple Grant basically meeting a fan and like a whole video chat between them. And I haven't watched it, but I was like, oh my gosh, it's so relevant. So, you know, you talk about, you can at them. Apparently some people can video chat them and they should be here right now. (laughs) Yeah, that's the real question. Will you come on our podcast? (laughs) Well, I have Uh, a surprise for all of you. They're queued up right now. (laughs) (laughs) You would be like the podcast MVP. All right, so um, to wrap things up, I want to jump off of Katie's suggestion and have everyone take a minute to think about a favorite either Animorphs book or just moment, like something that really sticks with them when you look back over the series. I think it'd be nice to end our nostalgia podcast or an ending of a sort with uh, some series-specific nostalgia. So definitely my favorite book is The Andalite Chronicles. It's definitely the one I've read uh, more than any of the other ones. And like the whole like set, like not just, you know, the three separate published books, but like the whole Andalite Chronicles. And then I just really love just like the seeing Elfanger's arc and, you know, knowing that it sets the whole story in motion. He's really an awesome character. And I think that's one thing that, you know, I guess it's another thing I could say to Apple Grant is like, you know, we may just, you know, these characters are like yell at them for like not making good decisions, but they made characters that we love to discuss, even if we hate their decisions. So that's really treasuring. Yeah. This is not one specific moment, but pretty much anytime Rachel and Tobias are honest about their feelings for each oh. other which they often aren't. Um, (laughs) And every time Tobias makes it clear that he loves Rachel for exactly who she is. Okay, well, just get me right in the feels, why don't you? My favorite book is definitely the Orpagir Chronicles. That book is what made me regret not finishing the series for like 20 years. Just because the world building done in that book is, I think, I think it's the best example of world building in the series. And I just like that planet sounds so awesome. It's a really good story. And oh, this is uh, sort of a headcanon that I always had. And I didn't realize until this reread that was actually not the case. But as I remembered it, they actually did sing Mbop when they inducted David into the Animorphs. <laughs> that might be the most iconic moment. That's true. The most 90s and the most dark. Yeah, and I was really sad when I reread it and it was like, no, that didn't actually happen. Cassie just suggested it. So oh, That's well. amazing. I've got honestly too many favorites and they're all really dark, just about... This is a kind of a compound moment, I guess. 
So like in book two, you have Rachel saying that love is like a suit of armor. It makes you strong. And in book 17, she has that line about, you know, um, even she knows that the first four, the first several steps on the road to hell are we have to win. Now in the last book, she says, we both hid the truth from the others because Cassie couldn't let Jake make that decision. And Tobias couldn't let me. And those two, by loving us, would have screwed everything up. It was a war. Oh. After all, we a war we had to win. Oh, no. This like, yeah, this poor kid. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hate that literary analysis. It hurts too much. My favorite book is actually one of the silly ones. And it's the one with Jeremy Jason Nicole. I don't know. I love that one. Something about the pace, the dialogue, the way they get to their like uh, crush and are completely disillusioned, which I think is completely accurate to what would actually happen if you saw your celebrity off duty, you know? Um, So that's my favorite book. But my two favorite moments, one of them is just the general tenor of Rachel's wrestling in number seven. The idea of like, I can fight this fight or I can just go be happy. And that that struggle and that sense of responsibility was something that always really stuck with me and resonated with me and possibly influenced me, though I'm not really sure. But then above all else, everything else in the Animorphs was the experience of flying, which was so visceral Mm. from the way they wrote it. I have had so many dreams. I went skydiving. I went indoor skydiving. I think I'm going to take up paragliding because it will be the closest to that of all things I've ever done. Like the way they wrote flying, like hit something deep inside of me. And I've always wanted to achieve that ever since. So way to go, Apple Grant. I didn't even know I felt like that, but now I do. Aftrain is my favorite side character. So I thought I would say like either 19 or 29 would be my favorite book. But actually, there are chunks of those books that are kind of frustrating to read and a little convoluted. So I can't really say either one is my favorite. Like they're no more or less entertaining than a lot of the other very good main series books. So I think my actual favorite book is probably Visser. (laughs) Because it's so intense in a way that none of the other books are. And I agree with one of the bullet points in the episode notes for one of the Visser episodes, which was, is it a middle grade fiction book? (laughs) And one of Gray's um, refrains through his episodes was, middle grade fiction? (laughs) (laughs) And the answer is, yeah, no, (laughs) a lot of that is not. If I'd read that as a kid, a lot of it would have just gone push. But reading it as an adult, it was just such a, first of all, just like the juxtaposition of the courtroom drama with like the comedy elements into it with Visser 3 being an idiot. And then the extra like ticking clock feeling and high stakes of when are the Animorphs going to come in? How is this going to get resolved? How does Ava live? Like that kind of thing. But also flashing back to this very weird and very, very dark sci-fi story about these very bad people who come to Earth and try and get by on there. And I feel like one thing that Animorphs does so, so well, and which also comes out in uh, books like the Horkajir Chronicles, is really convey compelling non-human perspectives on like life and on especially in Visser, like it's aliens reacting to humans and how humans see the world. And speaking of how do you accurately film a story like Animorphs when so much of the action is in this internal struggle, how the heck would you film Visser? (laughs) It's all internal. And not just because lots of the characters are two people trapped inside one body. 
there's just so much emotion and inner conflict and unreliable narration. And it's just, it's great. And I've reread it more than I've reread any of the other books. And I just love it. I was thinking that Visser was actually one of the films you could best film because you could actually have the Yerk and the human sitting in like a black room talking to each other and it would be amazing. Just an observation. <laughs> that would be really cool. I love Casey. that a lot. Oh, I think Meg was in front of me. I think oh, Meg. The David trilogy. And Oof. deeply, especially Rachel's book in the David trilogy. Because Rachel is... Listen, Meg Hart's Rachel. Uh, she's a really, <laughs> really important character to me because in a lot of the media that I loved and the stories I love to get on, uh, they suffered quite heavily from the Smurfette principle where your group would have just one girl and she was usually the voice of kindness and reason, which is a lot of times the role that, that Cassie does play. And Rachel, for me, age 11, reading this the first time, she was beautiful and she was talented and she was athletic, but she also like not only had the skills to do, you know, to be pretty much the best at the whole fighting thing that they're locked in, but that she had the self-possession to recognize something unforgivable needs to be done and I'll do it so no one else has to suffer. Like, cause Cassie yeah. is the one that comes up with the terrible, uh, the terrible ending for David, but Rachel is the only one who can like carry it through and do it. And a lot of, a lot of Rachel's books, I think really like resonate strongly, like along that theme, but there's just something about the David trilogy, especially that, you know, a lot of times it's the adults that are letting us down. Um, but that it was a kid our age that was just as capable of great evil as we were of like great good. Like, oh my gosh, when he takes their cousin's place yeah, and just the implications that you would have to piece. Anyway, I love it. I loved all of it. I was a little <laughs> dark as a child. Remember, they all blow up at the end. Nobody lives. Um, <laughs> but that stems from, so in our initial books, everybody like figures out their reason for fighting. We're like, Jake wants to save his brother and Cassie wants to save the whole planet. The Yerks hurt Rachel's one friend. They hurt Melissa. And that's enough for Rachel's like, I will take them all down. I don't care what it takes. I will fight till this war is over. She has my whole heart for the whole series. I love Rachel. Yes, I love Rachel too. I so agree with so much of what Meg said. I also love this a lot. And that is one of my favorite books. And another one that I want to talk about that was another favorite was 45, which I luckily got to be on the podcast for. But that's one of my <laughs> favorites because um, I just love the arc that Marco has. And he finally, it's, to me, that's, it's the beginning of the end. It's the finally busting wide open of the the truth about the animorphs they tell his dad it's they they have to go rescue his mom like it's all it all finally happens and somehow it's also like more exciting because you've had a lot of like meh books sort of right before this and a couple of the great moments anytime that um I, I, I'm a big Marco fan also. So anytime that Marco lightens the mood um, mm. throughout the series um, and anytime that Marco drives, it's great. Um, and then in the David <laughs> books, this is not lightening the mood, but that, that get Rachel line, I think is so great. Ted, I think he, after listening to the podcast, like the, it just got better and better. Um, yeah. And, and of course the, the globules. <laughs> the globules. It's a classic. Definitely 19 for me. Maybe not a surprise. I think it's a fantastic book overall. I know Katie, you said it's like convoluted in some ways, but I think it's actually extremely well structured and that's part of what, what I like about it. But it also just has everything like 
really interesting ethical thinking between Cassie and Aftran, great discussion. Um, but also I think a huge part of why it's successful is it is grounded in the whole horrors of war thing. And I think that the early part of that book, how it starts with the battle and then Cassie just being absolutely shattered following the battle is extremely memorable. And maybe I'm just like Joyce, like pain, but I, I really <laughs> love that that whole scene of, of Cassie in the barn following that battle and how that sets up her choices in that book. I'm with John. My favorite is definitely the hork Chronicles. Uh, that was the one that, uh, as he said, the world building, like just seeing the genesis of this conflict, it really brought the whole thing into a better relief for me. And, and not for nothing, I really like the characters. I'm sorry that we didn't get to revisit them from that story. Like we got a little bit of it. Like, there was like, you know, the second coming in Toby, but it's not the same. And up until that point, the hork had pretty much exclusively been portrayed as these giant monsters. So to see them as they see themselves and, you know, to learn about their creation was, for me at least, very moving. As far as favorite moment of the series, oh, that's a tough one. I'm going to have to go with the buff of human just after all of, <laughs> after all that we've talked about in the podcast, I'm, I'm going to go with the buff of human. Oh buff of human did nothing wrong. <laughs> It was completely nonsense, but it was a welcome diversion, and I liked it. Oh, sorry, Ted. Did you want to say things? Kevin, you're my favorite. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is definitely recency bias, but the like favorite moment that I can think of is just the "My name is Jake Berenson" uh, introduction mm-hmm. to that chapter. I was just like, ah, in my backyard, like aloud. <laughs> I was like, ah. Um, reading that because it was just very exciting. <laughs> Amazing. I feel like I've already uh, expressed this. I mean, I'd have to say 19 is probably my favorite book. I was also thinking a lot while people were talking about six, which was the book that made me love Animorphs. And I feel like it's still, it's still like that exploration of what it's like for Jake to be infested and controlled. That is just one of the quintessential parts of the series for me. I just really love that. For all of our beloved listeners who have not yet gone and read Jenny 37, I'm putting one last plug in for it because my favorite thing that has happened in this series is that Jenny wrote me a book and it was really, really good. Um, So that's still my favorite moment. I refuse to think of another one. (laughs) I'm not prepared. Read Jenny's book. All right, I can't top that. So I'm just gonna say hey, my favorite moment is when Cassie thinks she tricked her mom into believing that nine inch nails is nice and neat. <laughs> Cassie's mom knew what was going on. It's still, it's still absolutely the funniest thing that's ever happened. I mean, yeah, that whole book, book twelve. What a yeah, great yeah, book. Yeah. I also think, yeah, my probably my favorite moment was Rachel, yeah, Rachel. and Jake in the ho- no in the hospital Ooh, in twenty two. Yeah. I think that's that's yeah. that's the peak for me. Yeah. All right, so it's been three hours plus. We've uh, we've had some requests to do this again. It's I'm not, I'm not going to shoot them down now. <laughs> At the very, there's least, also a lot of discussion about favorite WTF moments in the chat, which is yeah, a lot. I think I say, so. We will probably have to put maybe we could put like some good clips of the chat on tumblr or something like the chat is priceless yeah we're gonna have to include some chat content when we, <laughs> when we post this Listen, uh, just yeah, because so... just because the series has an open ending doesn't mean the podcast should have an open ending <laughs> we should come back and add more on to it for as long as the stars shine on <laughs> yeah we're not the podcast will not wind down until the movie comes out at least <laughs> 
You guys, thank you all so much for making time for us on a Saturday evening. It was wonderful to see all of your faces again and to have your incredible comments um, and insight and enthusiasm. We really appreciate all of you for being here and for being part of our podcast. And thank you. Yeah. And just bringing extra voices on to talk to us instead of just having me the three of us was so amazing. And it was such a treat to have you all on and sometimes multiple times. I just want to keep you all in a room with us forever. That's possible, right? You're all in? Great. Perfect. <laughs> For those who are interested in writing things, we're definitely going to host a like podcast fic writing swap thing at some point. We haven't really gotten it off the ground yet. Yeah, we have to think, figure out how it's going to work, yeah. but we'll announce it. It will be more Probably creative, we'll do a mailbag soon and we'll announce that. Yeah. I, I love how none of us want to leave. <laughs> yeah. I'm just following everyone. I've got, I've got uh, Twitter open and I'm just typing all your <laughs> usernames in. This was super fun, all but right. I do have to go record a book, so. Yeah, Yay. we should all go. All right. Bye, Bye guys. Fun and hope to Bye. talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. Good to talk to you guys. So nice Bye, to everyone. meet everyone. Good night, everyone. Really cool. Thank you so much. Ray, Jenny, and Ted, thank you so much again. Yeah. If you want to find us, we are at animorphology.com and at animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. We will we will not record extra late, but I do want to give us a chance to like all say hi before we do like official podcast start, um, so we can just know who's who. You say um, you won't record late, but come on, we all know how animorphology works. <laughs> I'm on a Zoom call, baby, yeah. it's hot inside. I can't <laughs> wait for fall, baby, it's hot inside. <laughs> Ugh.